Coming to you from Charm City, I'm Cece. And I'm Anthony. And this is Lit Pop Bang. All right, we have a great episode for you today. I'm going to jump right into the bio. Jung Yoon's work has appeared in Tin House, The Best of Tin House, The Massachusetts Review, The Indiana Review, The Atlantic Monthly, Washington Post, Los Angeles Review of Books, and so on. She is a recipient of an individual artist grant in fiction from the Maryland State Arts Council and the Massachusetts Cultural Council, an honorable mention for a Pushcart Prize, and residential fellowships from the McDowell Colony, Ooh. the National Humanities Center, UCross Foundation, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Currently, Jung lives in Baltimore with her husband and serves as an assistant professor of English at George Washington University. She's also the fiction editor of Hyphen, a journal focused on stories by and or about Asian Americans. Oh, cool. Shelter is her first that. novel and is available now from Picador. Welcome. Thanks for Yay. joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Thank thanks you for, for coming here. down. Um, so we usually ask after we read the bio yeah, if, there, yeah. if there's anything additional that you would like to add that's not in the bio that you would like listeners to know about. The you. real you. <laughs> not in you the know, bio. Uh, I think the only thing that I would add is that I'm three years new to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. This is my okay. third summer. And... Um, yeah, I never expected to live here, but yeah. I'm here. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. Okay, great. You do love it. That's great. Yeah. I great. absolutely love it. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, when yeah. I was doing like uh, pre episode research and I saw that it was Massachusetts before here, mm-hmm. right, right. So right. And I was trying to do the math and it was got here. I figured it was, must have been two or three years. Yeah. yeah I yeah. was in Massachusetts for like 12 and a half years and thought that that was maybe going to be our forever home. So yeah. if you would have told me, you know, years ago that I would be moving to Baltimore, I was like, no. That, that doesn't sound that's right. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and you're originally born in North Dakota, right? Um, I was Am born I? in South Korea, but I right. grew up in North okay. Dakota yeah. from a pretty right. young age. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's a lot of different landscapes. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But I've landed in Baltimore and yeah. I love Baltimore. I'm right. so glad to hear that. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. uh, sometimes for for people who work in DC and live in Baltimore, if you move here right away, you get here and be like, "Oh no, that was an accident," and they go to DC. But the people who end up like Balt- liking Baltimore, are the people who stick around. Yeah. So, um, and I'm it's always, a great literary community. Uh, it really is. Yeah. So rich. Yeah, yeah. it really so rich. is. And last time we all three of us saw each other, we were at Nate Brown. Shout out to Nate Brown, who was on this podcast yeah. before. Nate and Thea Brown's uh, uh, house reading. We yeah, were there the last Rogue time. Rogue series, which we hope continues. Rogue series, yes. yes. I was forgetting the name. Yes. Yeah, so you want to start us off with questions? Yeah, sure. I can start. Um, I have a simple question first. Um, the simple question is, how long did Shelter take you to write? That's the very, very easy, <laughs> simple question. It's a beautiful novel. Um, it is both uh, stunning and devastating and a family drama and thriller all in one to me. Seems like maybe it was a long work in progress, but I don't know if it was or not. So I'm interested in knowing how long it took you. I love that you said, let me ask a simple question because my (laughs) answer is Uh not as simple as it might seem. Okay. Um, I would say that Shelter took about a decade to write or three years to write, depending on how we're talking about it. A decade or three years. I know, I know. (laughs) That is complicated. I know. Okay, so. Um, I started thinking about Shelter in 2004. Okay. And you know, you're... You're both writers, so you know, like, sometimes things have long, long, long gestation periods, and this one was one of those projects that had a long thinking time. Okay. Um, So I would write a scene but not know what it was connected to, and Mm. then put it away for a couple years, and Mm. I would write something else and put it away for a couple of years, and it never sort of knit together in my head as a novel um, or all part of the same project until probably like seven years after the first initial spark. I know. I know. This is why I tell my students, like, save every dang thing you write. Like, save everything. Makes sense. Um, 
So I guess it was three years once I started thinking about it as one project. Right. Um, and I think part of that time was like this this not great, not very thoughtful period of like going out to agents, like sending it out to agents like too early. So it was like yeah, still very yeah, much right. like in the mush for for a while. I can't imagine it being in the mush. Oh, I was so in the mush for a while. <laughs> <laughs> God, I love that word, in the mush. Maybe yeah. that would be the title of this podcast, yeah, in, in the, the mush. mush. It there was, it is. It was pretty mushy. Um, so 10 years or three. Wow. Yeah. But I guess it's just... Um, and this is the same thing is actually happening to the second novel, where I'm actually returning to something that I started all the way back in grad school and wow. didn't quite know what to do with it back yeah. then. So, uh, did you? Can I ask one more follow up question? Yeah. Did you have an agent when you were sending out Shelter when it was in the mush? I did. Um, okay, but. I made the mistake of sending it out to a bunch of agents trying to get representation, I think before oh. it was ready as a manuscript. I think we all do that thing sometimes where we feel like our ego is ready um, for forward progress, yes. but the manuscript, the yes. work is yes. not yes. ready. Yeah. That's much like life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I did that thing, which right. I feel like a lot of writers um, can be pretty sympathetic too because they've done some version of it themselves. Right. So eventually I did end up um, getting representation right. and it went out with an agent. So Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it's not always easy, even though I thought it was an easy question, but it's not always, you know, you're right. A lot of things take a long gestation period. Yeah, you know, I, when you talk about how you sort of uh, wrote a piece, wrote a piece, and it took a while to figure out they're all connected, they're yeah. one story. Um, when you got down to the actual work of, okay, I know what I'm working on, I'm putting it together, did you do some of the formal structural things that some writers do of, like, outlining and planning, <laughs> or are you more of a pantser? You just put it, sort of, let it flow out of you and, and work about the rest in revision. I actually did a panel about structuring novels yeah. and huh. referred to myself as a pantser. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am, like, 98% pantser mm. and like 2% yeah. planner, which is odd if you know me personally because I'm really organized, I'm super clean, my house has like no dust in it, my bookshelves are organized alphabetically, that and I notice nice. when people start pulling stuff out and moving around. <laughs> if by all accounts, I should be like a planner, like someone yeah. who outlines and is really methodical mm -hmm. about the process. Like this is the one area of my life where I'm just not like that. I'm very unplanned. I think in scenes. Um, it takes me a long time to sort of knit and connect and figure out like what the connective tissue is mm. from one yeah. scene to another. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I was a planner. I I'm just not. And I think like the second time <laughs> around when you're writing a novel, I, I think I've become much more accepting and kinder to myself about the fact that that this is just the way that I am. Like, yeah. I, I'm not yeah. going to really be able it's to your change this at yeah. this point. Yeah, it's your process. I think people have to own their own processes. Yeah, yeah. Although I think we get, you know, there are a lot of panels and presentations and podcasts where oh, you yeah. hear about other people who oh, yeah. do certain things and it sounds so much more efficient. And I think, you know, young writers, young, however you want to define that term, yeah. um, early writers, we tend to beat ourselves up quite a mm. bit about the things that we aren't doing right. as opposed to focusing on the fact that like we're putting our butt in the seat every day yeah. doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I definitely hear that. Like hearing people talk about craft that's more organized than mine and be like, Oh, that must be so nice. I'd love mm -hmm. to try that. I'd love to be like that. But yeah, you got to figure out yeah. what, whatever puts it together in a way that works. Exactly. Sure. Lauren yeah. Groff uh, did a reading at the Ivy and she talked about her process, mm -hmm. which, Briefly involves 
writing everything out longhand, like writing an entire wow. draft of a story yeah, out wow. longhand, yeah. then like a maniac, like tearing it all up and getting rid of it and then rewriting it again. And whatever she remembers from that original draft yeah. is what? what? I know. Yeah. What kind of kill your darlings <laughs> bullshit is this? Like, I'm like, what? <laughs> what no. are you talking? Yeah, yeah. but. Oh, no, not, not tear it up. Exactly. Not. She tears it up. Oh man, I know. That's wild. I, I know. It's wild. Yeah. Um, okay, so speaking of, uh, you mentioned being a young writer, um, but you've also described yourself as sort of a late bloomer, um, which I think is so interesting um, because I hear a, a lot of times people talk about like, uh, oh, this person didn't publish until this. Just remember that this person didn't get started until this, mm -hmm. and oftentimes it's not that old. Like I always hear people like, can you believe this person didn't start their first book until they were in their mid thirties? I'm like, that seems like a really reasonable, normal, middle-road yeah. time to publish yeah. your first book. Yeah. Um, but I the way Morrison's they're framing first, the question in, like, 39, I think Morrison's 40, first was 38. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so, I mean, like, what? <laughs> if Morrison can yeah. do it, we that's all can saying. do it. It's almost always Makes framed, though, as though that's, like, oh, that's so late in life. Right. Can you believe that? And it's, right. It's not. It seems pretty... It's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you did an interview a few years back um, with the Smithsonian mm -hmm. um, where you are talking about... Um, you got your MFA in your 30s, this first book uh, debuted in your 40s, um, and often, um, often that's described, um, this idea of being a late bloomer or publishing later than some of your peers, it's described in like, as lack, like in negative terms, but I was wondering if you had any, any ideas about uh, the benefits of that, of, of what waiting until your 30s to get your MFA, your 40s to publish your debut, how that benefited you as a writer, your process, or the work itself? Sure, sure. I, you know, I think that um, I was 43 when Shelter debuted. I'm, God, like close to 47 now. Mm -hmm. I think I am 47. <laughs> I'm super confused already. <laughs> We're not counting. <laughs> I'm not. I think that when you debut later in life and you did other things, it makes you extraordinarily grateful for any mm. level of interest in your work that yeah. people seem to have. Like, I'm always stunned. Like, I'm sitting here, you know, with this big microphone in between <laughs> all of us thinking, like, it's so nice, like, to be talking to people who actually want to talk about my work. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, like, a certain level of humility of just, you know, wanting to write for so long, watching a lot of people who are younger than you mm -hmm. um, doing that and being, you know, successful, however you want to define successful, and wishing that you could, and just taking a really long time to get started. So yeah, yeah. I think I, I remember publishing this debut and, and being grateful for like any ounce of attention that people were willing to throw to the book, to me, and being kind of surprised by it, because that's mm. not the way our writing lives really go. Like, we spend so much of our time in isolation. Yes. We spend so much of our time in our heads, and, like, suddenly, like, you're you're asked to, like, go on a book tour and, like, right. talk to people. That and you be, don't know. <laughs> and shake their hands and sign yes. their books. And, and do publicity. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's odd. And, you know, for someone like me who tends to be fairly private and interior in general, um, it's a little bit shocking. But I, I don't know. I, I feel nothing but gratitude. Um, mm. As a result, and I think part of that is just age. Like I, I think that there were periods of time in my life where I sort of wrote off the possibility of any of this happening. Yeah, great. So, I, and I guess this question, uh, the second question, is related to that. But um, you were living in New York mm -hmm. when you decided uh, during September 11th, and you decided uh, to mm -hmm. leave there and go get your MFA and sort of 
the writing life that you've had after that has led to the book and now where you are today. Um, but again, because you're starting a little later, that means you probably would have had a decade, decade and a half, two decades worth of work experience before your work was like writer educator. Okay. So you can talk, can you talk about some of that work experience and both what you think it, just generally about it, but then also what it lends to your work, sure. uh, having, having this experience outside of just writing and being an educator? Um, I, I spent about a decade of my life in public service and not-for-profit service. Yeah. Oh, so cool. I, I started out actually in the Giuliani administration, and this yeah. was before Giuliani completely lost his mind. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> let me just say that. So yeah. this was like mid-90s New York. New yeah. York was kind of doing an economic turnaround at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting time to work in city government, but yeah. I did a one-year fellowship there and um, moved on to another city agency and then was eventually told by a supervisor that I was never going to advance anywhere beyond my current level um, because of uh, my political affiliation, which was Democrat, always has been. Hmm. And this was a Republican administration, right, right. Okay. Um, obviously. <laughs> right. Uh, that was really antithetical to everything that I had been brought up to believe, which is that if you work really, really hard, people mm. will notice, good things will happen. Mm. And I think that was my first adult sort of reckoning with the fact mm. that so, you know, sometimes things don't work yeah. out the way that they should. Right. Yeah. So I jumped ship from public service and went to not-for-profit service and landed at the New York Public Library for about three years. Oh, amazing. And then Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts for another two years and change. Um, you know, those were pretty formative in terms of my desire to want to write my interest in, in art and artists. Uh, yeah. At the New York Public Library in particular, there were always writers around. And having grown up in North Dakota, um, having grown up, you know, sort of lower middle class, middle class. We didn't know artists. We didn't know writers. Yeah. Like, that's right. just not something that I grew up with. So it was really kind of stunning to me, the idea that people, like, this was their vocation. Like, their job was to come to the New York Public Library and do research in those, <laughs> in those archives and to be able to sit and read and write. That yeah. was never, never an idea of a life that I thought I could have. Right. Yeah. But I think being in such close proximity to it was... Uh, inspiring on one hand, but kind of torturous on another. Because here I was do, you know, doing administration-type work and feeling very, very, very far away from the possibility of, of writing myself. Mm. Um, and especially, like, you know, Cece, you said you lived in New York. I did. During 9-11, you, too. Right. Yeah, oh, we were right. there at the same time. We okay. just didn't know each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in New York is expensive. You work yeah, a lot. Sure it is. You yeah. work a ton of hours yeah. um, to be able to afford like the small cramped apartments that you live in. Yeah. I was doing that, and that didn't leave much time or bandwidth or emotional energy to be able to write at all, which yeah. was part of the reason why uh, I, I chose to leave. Right, um, yeah. Because I knew I was never going to become a writer. Right. Um, being in New York, even though I was surrounded by writers and artists all right. the time in my work. Right. Yeah. That's, right. a, that's a weird existence. Yeah. 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 People say that to me. I, that's a great uh, transition, I think, too, because people said that to me all the time. They said, you lived in New York. You were around all these famous writers and poets. And, and I said, yeah. And I used to go to the 92nd Street Y, and I used to see Nikki Giovanni, or I used mm -hmm. to, you know, all of this stuff. I used to be so, in, you know, uh, wrapped up in the art scene and in writing and the literary scene in New York. But uh, it's very hard, like you said, to, you know, the dif difference between becoming a writer mm -hmm. and supporting other people who do it yeah. is a big, that's a big cap 
chasm, you know yeah, what I mean? Sure. And even if you have the interest to write, you need some space in order to think and do it. That's part of the thing that I think too. And yeah, um, yeah so I think it's always interesting when people say, oh, but you lived in New York. You could have just, you know, just taken out your pen and become, you know, uh, Ernest Hemingway or whatever. You know, I'm just like, uh, no, I couldn't. You know what I mean? So it really, for me, it also did not happen. I mean, I was writing while I was there, but um, it really, um, my writing took on a different uh, lifestyle once I left New York. For yeah. me, it felt like, you know, I was doing a little, I was doodling, I say doodling, but um, it was, it became real once I left the city. You I know, like that like, description, a different lifestyle. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it became I real for that. me. So, yeah. yeah. But I have another question. Yeah, you're going to talk about the work again, right? Yes, you got a little indeed. Distracted there yeah, yeah, yeah. The process. You've been doing some digging on uh, interviews, and I have too. Yeah. So the rumpus.net uh, did a review, actually, of Shelter. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I like that they said is that they called the book Shelter. The central question of the book is the allocation of blame, which I thought was a very interesting uh, way to phrase the book. I don't know if I necessarily agree, but what I'm interested in in that idea is uh, talking about shame and talking about uh, Asian Americans and thinking about the depiction or respectability politics. And in this novel, um, there's a, for people who haven't read it, I mean, you should go, you should run. You should run to wherever to pick up shelter because it's amazing, I tore through it. But beyond that, I'm saying, um, this is not a book that's concerned with how things look or appear, even though the family um, is very much, um, you know, has a lot of respectability politics. Um, Kyung, am I saying his name yes. right? Kyung is a very interesting uh, main character in that he's struggling. He's in between an old generation and a new generation and trying to figure out uh, the, what his role is going to be, right? And so I'm very interested, especially with the onslaught of, like, I don't know, I, like, I shouldn't, these these things are like uh, commercial depictions of Asian Americans, like fresh off the boat or crazy rich Asians, right? But I think like respectability politics is a thing. It's very similar to African Americans' respectability politics, which I personally don't really believe in. But anyway, I'm clouding the question. What I really want to know is, uh, were you concerned about the depictions of Asian Americans in your book? Was that a concern for you? Nope. Okay. <laughs> wow. No. Nope. That was a lot. I, I mean, like... if I was, I wouldn't have written about domestic violence, right? Um, yes. Or child abuse in the first place. Um, right. And I kind of expected like a larger sort of, a, a larger level of, of perhaps criticism about that. And that oh. wasn't actually what I got at all. But um, I, I was not concerned with what anyone thought right. um, broadly or specifically about Asian Americans or right. Korean Americans or first generation right. or second. Right. Um, you know, I was really most concerned about whether or not these characters felt like real people to me. Mm -hmm. um, and the longer that I sat with them, the longer that I thought about them, the longer that I dreamed about them, the more and more real they became. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think as a result, like, there were times when I would find myself, like, writing a couple of lines, writing a paragraph or a page and being like, nope, he would never do this. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And even if yeah. it was something that I didn't think was particularly complimentary, um, even though it might have been something that sort of leaned into a stereotype right. or leaned against a stereotype, I just didn't care. Like, I right. just wanted to write something that felt true, particularly to Kyung, but to his entire family. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. And it's funny that you mentioned a, a review, because I don't read my reviews, and I know no one oh. believes me when I say that I don't <laughs> read my reviews. But again, that's that's funny, I love of, it. That, that kind of leads... Back to that question of like, I, I should be a planner, I should be really methodical, yeah. but I'm also the type of person who sees like a problem and wants to fix it. It's like, what the fuck can I do? Like, mm -hmm. if someone doesn't like the book, if someone yeah. sure. like, picks apart the book, there's sure. nothing I can do, which right. is why I don't read the reviews. 
Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I've never heard that before. You've never I heard it. Oh my goodness. I don't I'm glad I didn't pick out more lines from the from the review and shock no. shock and all, you know what I mean? No. But I mean, no, I felt that that um statement, like I said, allocation of of blame. I thought it was an interesting mm-hmm. way to phrase to think about the book, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I I I don't necessarily know if I would agree, but I see the way that they're looking at it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of sure. shame. There's those things. I feel like you know I don't necessarily know about um, who to blame, but you know I was thinking about that and uh, you know thinking about respectability politics and how often minorities are often uh, writers are and and creators, minority creators of any kind. I think about you know even Kara Walker's work, who's a visual artist. I think about what people say about respectability politics and African American yeah. uh, art, and I kind of think like you know it's whatever the creator wants to create right? right and you said you wanted to be true to these characters and that's a that's a fantastic thing yeah and I also just don't think that that writers of color that artists of color should carry that additional sort of weight sure they or should. load me either um that that other writers don't yeah don't have to yeah I just no yeah I'm not play it <laughs> and I, I think maybe that uh the the rhetoric the rhetoric of politics even the politics of self and the politics of identity and even when it's people who are like us, whether our politics or our identities, um, that, that's, it's rhetoric, right? It's meant to convince you of something. Yeah. And, and I think that really great literature tries to push back against that, trying to be as completely honest as possible, where rhetoric might just be trying to show the best side of anything, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a racial identity, uh, sexual identity, even gender, right? Where you don't want to talk about the bad stuff, right? right? It pushes against that rhetoric of um, only the best, right? Right. So to be more complete and talk about uh, our characters or our lives when we're writing autobiographically um, as really complex right. and contradictory. Right. And, but we also yeah. know that there are writers who did and do care about it, right? Sure, I mean, sure. right? You know, so sure. I'm, you know, I think it's okay for other people to care about it. Yeah. I just don't want it foisted upon me. You yeah, know what I mean? Sure. I mean, you know, for so sure. yeah, but I think uh, I, I do agree with you that great works of literature, um, many of the, the, the ones that I love push back against mm. those things. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of writers in the past who, you know, for whatever reasons, I mean, about their families or about their identities, they were really cautious about yeah revealing some of that stuff and, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, we're concerned about it. Sure. So, um, Toni Morrison talks about this, uh, yeah. why she wrote the way she wrote yeah. was to be uh, an antidote to yeah. the early uh, enslaved narratives right. um, of people who could only tell right. the stories that, uh, you know, bourgeois white publishers exactly. and readers wanted to read exactly. about enslaved people. Right. So she's like, well, I'm just correcting the record, right? right. I'm giving you a more right. complete, honest version of this. Right, yeah. right. All right, let's get into pop culture, the pop section of our podcast. It's just the two of us for this. I guess we'll be back for the third segment. Indeed. But what a stacked month. A lot of cool stuff going on this month. There's always so much stuff going on. We're we're always debating what we should talk about. Yeah, we're trying to hone it down. Yeah. You want to start with royalty? I do. Let's talk royalty. I mean, royalty also slash hashtag black girl magic. Yeah, of course. Um, So the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Sussex. I I always love to say that. Duke Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Anyway, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are on their, doing their philanthropic thing and they've just donated 4,380 pounds. I have no clue how much money that is in yeah. like dollars. Do you yeah, know? Yeah, a little more than dollars, right? I is mean, like right? maybe maybe 5Gs in yeah, like real dollars. Right. Anyway, they've, uh, I digress. They've donated that amount of money to a pool in Mozambique in their son Archie's name. Uh, the name of the area is called the Gunita 
Bay in Mozambique. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and they've donated this money uh, to, to help the pool because they've had a lot of deaths. They have an average of 12 deaths per year in this pool with children. You know, it's a children's yeah, pool. That's wild. And um, they're just feeling, you know, the, like they would like to help and give some money in terms of helping to um, hire swim instructors, yeah. but also in making safer, you know, practices for the pool yeah. in order so that children, um, you know, will go to the pool and enjoy it. And they won't have like, I mean, 12, 12 deaths per year is pretty high That's terrifying. for, for That's one terrifying. specific pool. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty high. Well, it's cool. It's, it's, what it's an interesting thing, like philanthropy from the royal family yeah. in the year twenty nineteen, right? Yeah. Like what they can do, what they should do. So right, and they yeah. have a, and they can choose what yeah. they can choose how they give their money and what they you know spend it on. Yeah, it's yeah, wild. it's wild. It's so wild. I think um, you know I'm always interested in what they're doing in the world. Um, also because I'm obsessed with Meghan Markle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean she's yeah. an American now she's a Brit. I mean yeah. supposedly you know that changeover in culture is always interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to me that you keep us up to date on the royal comings and going. Let's say, and Meghan Markle generally being like sort of the the, the linchpin that keeps us interested in. I mean, yeah. Of, yeah. Other than other than that, I don't I don't really care about the Brit royals. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, would like, not care about the family if not yeah, for her. if not for Meghan yeah, Markle. Yeah. But I always think it's interesting. I think um, you know it's also interesting to see the kind of media. I also saw another article that said uh, that the Queen and Meghan Markle are friends, and they sort of pitched the article as if they wouldn't be. <laughs> You know, as if she wouldn't like Meghan Markle. You know, it's interesting. I just like the media surrounding, yeah. um, you know, talking about Meghan Markle because I think they don't. Um, she's like the, you know, she's like black, but not black, but almost black, but American, but like Brit. She she intersects yeah. a lot of areas that I think is interesting to watch the media try to conceptualize how to deal with her. Yeah, absolutely. She ends up being really symbolic of that sort of like blurring of cultural yes. lines. Yeah, yeah. Not yes. just yeah, not just because she's an American, not just because she's right. mixed race, but because she's right. all these things and so public. And also an ex television star. Yeah, yeah. I mean I never so watched we've the show. Seen for years I on. didn't watch it. Did you watch it? I'm just gonna be I like, have watched I've tried one episode oh, of really? it because I watch another oh. show on USA oh. and I kept seeing the ads for it and I tried one episode of and it. And Wawa. Yeah. Yeah I mean it didn't catch it. I mean she's an I mean it's cool to think though like this crappy television show has someone who is now royalty. Exactly. Yeah. And me it means dreams can come true, people. Yeah. That's, that's, maybe that's what the name of this podcast is. Yeah, this is an honor list we're not going to talk about, but one thing, I, another royal family news I'm oh. excited about is The Crown, the new season of The oh, Crown. Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't drops. watch it, I, but yeah. I have heard a lot about it. It's and, brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. It's a story of yeah. the queen, yeah. Elizabeth, Yes. Um, and sort of like a very personal story of what it's like to be her yeah. across the ages. And then yeah. the first two seasons uh, had one actress play, I mean, the actors in, in the first two seasons are all the same, and now for the seasons three and four, I guess they're going to hire new actors no. to represent sort of the change in their lives, the change in their appearance, and so it's going to be like a new cast when the right. show comes back, which is really exciting. Oh, yeah. interesting. And that's yeah. happening when, it, uh, when is the new season? I think September, November, October? early November. Oh, yeah, November. very okay. soon, very soon, yeah, yeah, yeah. this fall. Yeah. All right. Speaking yeah, of royalty. Yes, more royalty news. So, some royalty to us. Yes, that definitely. Is the Fab Five. I mean, Lip Popping loves Queer Eye. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I, I like a show that... I love a show that tries to make me cry every single time, right? Every single episode. They're I like, don't cry every We're going to make Anthony cry. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I cry some episodes, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the, the, most, the Mama Tammy episode definitely made me cry. Yeah. I won't. I mean, whatever. It's a complicated episode, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, kind, it, sure. is it is. I like, yeah, anyway. Yeah. We, but 
more news. Yeah, so some news. Jonathan Van Ness, he's uh, touring on his book right now, yeah. right? His new, is it a memoir? It is a memoir. It's called Over the Top. Yeah, and so he's doing media tours right now. Um, you may remember uh, six months ago, maybe longer, maybe shorter, he came out as non-binary. Right, um, Still exactly. uses he, him, set of pronouns, but wanted people to know non-binary. Right. Um, and then... This week, as he's doing this tour for the book, he also came out in an umbrella way. So right. he came out as a person recovering from addiction, yes, a person who's a survivor of sexual, sexual assault, yes. and a person who's HIV positive. Yes. And um, this interview is just really raw and honest yeah. and wide open. And um, the interesting thing about it is, like, as a memoirist, right, yeah. you just showing his whole life, which right. is, you know, what memoirs do, right? Yeah. They, it's scary. It is terrifying. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't do it. That's why <laughs> That's why I'm not I a mean, memoirist. I mean, you do it as a poet, right? Mm, but, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Poetry, there's the, the blurring of, there's uh, a lot is of this blurring. true? Is this, there's a, you know, there's a lot, persona, I mean, memoir, yeah. memoir is really close to the bone. I mean, yeah. you know, that's why I'm, I'm so impressed. I'm always impressed with all the guys from Queer Eye because I think yeah. they're um, doing multiple things on multiple levels in terms of being um, icons for, um, you know, LGBTQ people everywhere. Yeah. But I think Jonathan in particular, I mean, I think this memoir being this uh, go, going that, that deep in is really impressive to me. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's a hard thing to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I this is one of the reasons I love Jonathan Ness is just the idea of being vulnerable, being himself. Yeah. Um, really being completely raw and transparent because yeah. he knows what it means right. to the people who see it. Right. right. And so, like, there's a lot of criticism, maybe rightfully so, about oh, Queer Eye. Oh, about uh, Queer Eye. Yeah, yeah within, of course, of yeah, course. Yeah, within, I mean, yeah. But but I think, like, and, and maybe within the individual people, too, I'm sure. Maybe, I haven't heard right. a lot of it. But there is something, I think, really powerful about being this, like, here's everything on the table. Yeah. And I'm showing you because I'm not the only one like this. Exactly. Representation always matters. I yeah. mean, that's the thing, you know. And Jonathan also is from Quincy, Illinois. I love that as, as a born yeah. Midwesterner. Yeah, I love Midwest. You know, not, not hard. <laughs> I don't rep Midwest hard. But I love that he talks yeah. about the Midwest and yeah. sort of... Um, you know, some of the dangers that lurk there and kids being different and not really seeing versions of themselves elsewhere because I felt yeah. very much like that as a Midwesterner. Yeah. So uh, shout out to Quincy, Illinois, uh, where, you know, Jonathan Van Ness is from. But I think this memoir, I have not read it. I'm very interested and excited to read it. I think it doesn't drop until until the third week of uh, September. So um, should be out by the time readers hear should this. Should be out yeah. by the time readers hear this. Yeah. So I'm very interested and excited to read it. And uh, we thank Jonathan Van Ness for all of his uh, being open to us and yeah. you know uh, I read an article also in the New York Times they uh, interviewed him and uh, apparently while the interviewer was talking to Jonathan Ness they were at a diner and a woman came over and was like super excited to see Jonathan and Jonathan was like on the verge of tears talking to the, the interviewer and you know Jonathan just said to the, to the woman ma'am I can't take a picture right now and the woman said well I just wanted to come over and tell you I love your show and he was like thank you namaste <laughs> you know and, and which is totally Jonathan right you yeah, know what yeah, I mean yeah. it's like you know being present being thankful in the moment, but also being like, girl, <laughs> yeah. I can't take this picture yeah. right now. Yeah. You know? uh, in Ellen, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, oh. in her new stand-up that came out last year. Oh, the I first stand-up in like decades. And yeah, decades, right? New, right. It's um, been a while. She talks about this, what it means to be a person who's like publicly good, right? She's supportive and happy and right. like reps positivity a lot. Right. And what it means for that to be that in public, it's right? Hard. You can never not be that, right? Right. right. Um, and so, like, you can't get upset about even things that might make you upset because yeah. it's public. And so, yeah. yeah, to be like, you know, 
to have your like wounds raw because you're actively talking about them and have to engage with people, a the fan. public. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about for me, you. We have anxiety around our small literary events. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine the the extent of that of being a public figure and then people coming out? I mean, I, I can't yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah. I would need a Xanax every day. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? I didn't say that. <laughs> All right. Uh, speaking of TV, some other TV. I know this isn't like news, news. Right. But you want. But yeah, I just recently finally uh, stumbled into Barry. Right. Um, you laid on it. I'm laid on it. It came out in 2018. Right. Um, I mentioned it because it's nominated for six Emmys. Um, will have. By the time this goes to air, those Emmys will have aired. I'm sure one of six, it's a decent chance they win at least an Emmy this year. Yeah, they so probably will. Congratulations. Um, and this is on top of, like, five Emmys they won last year, too, yeah. uh, for season one. So. Yeah, the Emmys will be interesting in general to see who uh, comes out with the awards. Yeah. Um, yeah, we but love, I love Bill Hader. I, I do, too. Yeah. I, I didn't know I liked Bill Hader. I'm just a Saturday Night Live actor, right? But yeah. the boy I read it, he was on NPR a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he's been around. He's, uh, he's really smart. And, he is. Uh, he talked openly about... Having anxiety. Yes, he uh, does. Just cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's really smart. And really yeah, funny. and a lot of them, you'd be surprised at a lot of those SNL. Um, there, I mean, you know, uh, Ivy League schools yeah, and, yeah. and very. Yeah. It's very odd. Will Ferrell is like that too. Uh, very, you know, I was like, oh, Will Ferrell has like an Ivy League degree. Yeah, yeah. Didn't know that. He's yeah, kind yeah. of an ignorant fool on TV sometimes. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting also to watch people from comedy transition over to more serious roles, and that's yeah. what Barry is for Bill Hader. Oh I yeah, feel for like. sure. I mean, yeah. it's, it's funny. not funny. The show is <laughs> is funny. It's like a really dark. Dark. At times, funny. it's really like. Yeah. Super honest and raw and real. Yeah. And at times it's just ridiculously dark yeah. and funny. Um, it's it's a wild show. I so think, yeah. the premise of the show, for those who haven't seen it, here's the interesting thing. When I saw the adverts over right. the last year, uninterested in it, right? I'm like, oh, an assassin wants to be an actor. That's yeah. not really interesting, right? But in that NPR piece, Bill Hader talks about, like, no, this is actually a show about, like, veterans transitioning yeah. back in the real world. It's about, it's something, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, it's what happen. It's the idea of like what happens when the thing you're doing that you're good at kills your soul, mm. right? And mm. the thing you want to do, you're not very good at yet. Right. It's just it's a brilliant show. As a veteran, of course, really interested in that veteran, the transition aspect. It's just real and like uh, definitely have a you know a veteran writer in the show or a veteran consultant because just the mm. way mm. like. Even the way just the dudes act with each other is so right hmm. on, you know. Hmm. Um, but brilliant show, winning a whole bunch of awards. Yeah. Uh, certainly, deservedly so. And I love Looking forward to th uh, season three, which was recently announced, that they're going Oh, they are going to do, yeah. yeah. They always say, you know, they're always announcing something, and then I'm waiting, 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 and then how it takes forever. <laughs> yeah, hold off on announcing. I don't want to wait. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I get impatient. I don't like waiting for anything. <laughs> and speaking of waiting, we're, yeah. we're going to talk about and the And awards. National, right, yeah, yeah. awards. Yeah, Not so. Not We'll have to wait to find out who's going to win. Yeah, but. so this week, as the week we're recording this at least, uh, the National Book Award Long List just came out, and it's a great one. Yeah, in general, we wanted to talk about um, both poets who were nominated for prose and poets who were nominated uh, also for poetry. Yeah, so yeah. so uh, those who don't know, National Book Award, it's it's the big award. It it's is. Uh, one of the top tier awards for books in the United States. Um, it, every year, it's in five categories. Um, it's young people's literature, right. uh, work in translation, fiction, fiction nonfiction, fiction, and poetry. poetry, and there's categories. Every year in September, yeah. they announce a long list. It's a, right. a longer list of everyone who's being considered as right. finalist. And then in October, they'll do the a short thing. list, the finalists, right? right? And, and then, then in, end of November, they'll announce who won 
the National Book Award in right. each category. But the long list just came out, and 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 we're, we're the type who gets hyped, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We love yeah. we love to see who we're reading that yeah. is on the list yeah. and who's making the list and people we know. Yeah, people we read. All people that. We, yeah, people we stalk. Yeah, <laughs> maybe people I stalk. Who said that? Yeah. Um, but yeah. So you mentioned the thing I'm really excited about this year is how many poets showed up on the prose list. Yeah. So um, this year, uh, two poets are on the nonfiction list. Um, that's Carolyn Forche mm. and uh, Hanif Abdurraqib are both nominated for nonfiction work. They're mm. both poets, right. celebrated poets. Right. Um, and uh, it's really exciting to see them. They were announced earlier. And then when they announced a fiction list, right. Ocean Vuong's right. novel, uh, Honor Third Briefly Gorgeous, right. uh, was nominated for fiction. Right. Um, and so it's, it's just really nice to see poets... Uh, both, Crossing over. both an amazing poetry list, which you're going to talk about, but yes. also poets being recognized on the other list as well. Right, exactly. Uh, I have a theory about that, about why I th- sort of think that's happening. Why? I think I think it's because of um, Claudia Rankin. I uh, think yeah, I think Claudia yeah. Rankin's, you know, Citizen, I mm-hmm. think was the thing that sort of, um, the precedent that sort of really made that crossover mm-hmm. from poetry and prose or, or, or even poetry, non creative, non-fiction, whatever, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sort of, and she got nominated in like every category. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and yeah, so I think, yeah, yeah. I think. For essay, for poetry. Right, for and I'm not, and I'm criticism, sure that, yeah. and I'm sure that wasn't the first time that it happened, yeah. but I think that was the first Big time, it yeah, happened. Sure, you know what so I mean? was a cultural moment, for right. sure. Yeah. And so I think now we're gonna, I think we're gonna start seeing a lot more crossover in the future. In well, it's interesting course. because Maybe. one thing I know about the, these books is that poets. One of the reasons poets are so good at prose is that they really care about words. Yeah, every single word, yeah. even in their prose. And so you get this really lush prose, you do. beautiful storytelling. And, right. Um, but what's interesting is Citizen, for the most part, pretty plain spoken. Right, still poetic, still poetry, even. Right. Um, but really straightforward in its yeah. language, not what you describe as lyrical prose, even when it is prose. Right, in certain sorts uh, of ways. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly. A, yeah, I yeah. think it's. I think it's an amalgam of things. Sure. That's sort of. Yeah. That's, there are times it, where it's simple. Right. There are times, there are times when, it's, when it's high, high yeah. condensed yeah. poetry, and yeah, then there are absolutely. times where it's long, um, straightforward kind of uh, reportage, sort of yeah. reportage, yeah. sort of yeah. you know style. So yeah. And, and the really gorgeous moments, I think, are those moments where. It's blending the two, where it's a plain language well, I with think, like some simple poetic, like, right? Like I was repetition thinking, or something. I like think that. hybrid yeah. is always interesting, yeah. and I think it. it's. Uh, I, I think the industry is particularly interested in yeah. that now. Yeah. So that's the poets who are, are knowledge for prose, but the poetry list is pretty stacked this year it as is. well, right? It is, and we're not going to read the whole the whole list, yeah. but we just wanted to mention a some couple highlights. of the, some yeah. of the highlights, right? Yeah. Um, Dan Beachy Quick's Variations on Dawn and Dusk is mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Jericho Brown's book The Tradition. Jericho was just at Outright. Yeah, we recorded an episode from Outright earlier this year. Jericho's one of the featured headliners. Yeah, yeah Jericho's great. Uh, Toy Derricott's I knew and selected poems. New and selected, very yeah. very cool. Of course, uh, Ilya Kaminsky is a highlight. Yeah, Death I mean, Republic. That book, I, I've been said before. That book is going to be one of those books that is taught 10, 20, 30 years from now. It yeah, will be it's a brilliant right. book. Uh, Mary Ruflay's Dunce, yeah. right? And also Carmen Jimenez Smith, B Recorder. Mm-hmm. Those are like highlights from the list. Of course, you should check out the the entire long list. Um, you know, at the National Book Awards uh, site where you can. Find out everybody who's nominated for poetry. Yeah, and you know, there's there's one book on the list that I hadn't heard of before this came out, but I bought it as soon as I did because it's sort of some an area I've been working on and talking about lately, and that's uh, Brian Tiray's yeah. Doomstead Days. Yeah, it's sort of um, it's sort of climate disaster poetry, which oh, cool. you're seeing a lot, lot of. 
uh, nowadays, um, people engaging in sort of that apocalyptic yeah. um, and speculative work that's traditionally in fiction, but poets working on both speculative elements and then also like climate reality right now elements of disaster yeah. and fear. Um, so and you're liking it? Yeah, I mean, cool. I picked it up. It's a the the book itself is a really untraditional book. It's bigger than a most a poetry oh. book. It's a block shape versus a traditional shape. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, the layout on the page is a little different than what you expect from poems. It's a little wider. Uh, it's it's it looks different than, than you expect, mm. which is interesting. And then, uh, you know, the, the work itself is really gorgeous, mm. interesting stuff as well. So, cool. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, there's some names on there we didn't shout out, but the right. whole list, congratulations to everyone on everyone. it. It's yeah. a stack list. And the fiction list, which we didn't yeah. even talk about. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, all these are, uh, you know, there's a reason they're on the long list, and these are all just Indeed. stunning people books. doing great work. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so keep an eye out for that long list. The short list should be out soon, and, of course, the winner's in November. Okay, for the bang portion of the podcast this month, you had something that was connected to the work. Yes, um, but I also think. unconnected. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is interesting. You know, in uh, reading Jung's book Shelter and thinking about secrets, because this family has lots of secrets, um, I wanted to ask a question that was parallel to that. So my question: uh, It's the end of summer for all of us here. We're going back to school. We're thinking about yeah, books sure again. That's sure my are. good transition, <laughs> right? We're thinking about books, and so my question is, and I don't know who wants to go first is what is a book that people have talked to you about and that in conversation you have agreed and shook your head as if you read it and been like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 you know, but you never actually read that book. Um, I have one. I hope that both of you, everybody's <laughs> listeners, everyone here is sort of like cl- <laughs> cl- clamping down their eyelids and gr- gritting very hard. Um, but we all have books that we say that we've read, but we never have read. And maybe we feel guilty about it. Maybe we don't. Um, but I'm interested to know at least one title. You could, too, if you like, um, that you were supposed to read that you never did actually, you know, you actually never did open that cover, never open that book. Anthony looks like he wants I to think start. Anthony should go first. It, right. We <laughs> defer. We defer. Okay. So mine, I have a ton, first of all. Okay. And uh, it always devastates me. It always de- uh, When so, people ask you yeah, about it. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, for a reminder for readers, I'm wrapping up a PhD yeah. in English and I've been teaching writing or literature for about six, seven years now at the university. Um, but I didn't get, I have two bachelor's degrees, neither of them are in English or literature. And so a lot of the stuff people read in undergrad, I didn't read. Oh, okay. okay right? Okay, I'm okay, also a high school dropout. So like I missed senior year literature there too, right? right, right? right, right. So I, there's a whole big gap of stuff that an almost PhD should have read. And when it comes up, it devastates me. So uh, the biggest one, oh, I'm so... I'm he's so, so embarrassed, people. I'm so embarrassed. He's, 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 he's turning okay. red. The, this is the best question ever. The most embarrassing one, and it's, it's on my mind because I just, just downloaded it so I could read it this weekend when I'm at the beach, is Their Eyes Are Watching God. Oh. oh. I know. It's Look it's it, so... look it. Jung and I are going, tsk, tsk, tsk. 
It's so important. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm studying and I've taught at an yeah. HBCU, yeah. Um, an HBCU where she attended. Yeah. Before it was Morgan, yeah. it was a different long school time, and yep. she attended there ago. for a year or two. It was the seminary or whatever. Um, yeah. uh, uh, we're also like uh, the home of, of a, a journal dedicated to her. Yes. Um, it is outrageous for me to have not read that book, um, and I haven't yet. So I'm actually, it's its wild. I'm actually trying to cure it this week, but that yeah. is by far the most okay. embarrassing one for me. Well, I'm going to go next. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, Anthony here is releasing steam, listeners, as we're talking and doing this. I got it off my chest. <laughs> he's, he's free, people. I've I've liberated him here on Lip Pop Bang. But I'm going to go next because I feel no guilt about this. Okay, it's a super class. I good. mean, I I usually don't feel a lot of guilt. I'm not Catholic or anything like. Anyway, uh, mine is a super classic old one. It's Old Man and Sea. Oh, you, oh, oh yeah. I haven't read that either. Yeah, Old Man and the Sea. There it is, people. Never read it. Not concerned with it. Other people talk about it. Don't really care. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it may can, not be. You can take it. It may leave. not it's be. It's fine. It may not be fine. But I mean, I'm just, I'm just gonna shake my head a lot and like look very, you know, appeasing and basically. You know, never pick it up. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> may, maybe an audio book. I mean, there are things yeah, that I can pick yeah. up in audio. Classic things that I like to pick up in audio book that I could see myself listening to. Sure. That I just wouldn't. I just feel like I'm not gonna buy a paperback. I'm not gonna stock that. But I'm also a 20th and 21st century contemporary, right. yeah, hyper contemporary exactly. poetry yeah. and poetic scholar. So whatever. You know what I'm saying? Get off my back. Old yeah. man and see don't fit. Yeah. No, I feel that. I feel that way about uh, pre-modern. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. Just put on my gloves and just start punching. That's what I do. I'm like. Mm. I sometimes feel that way even about pre-modern poetry too. Because yes. Because I'm just like, yes. ah, not my field. Don't care that much. Right. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. It's like, Wait, you should read Aristotle's, blah, blah, blah. You know, stick it up your... Anyway, anyway, John, right. I'm talking too John. much, John. You've yeah, got to go. We're saving the best for last. No, maybe not. But I do, I totally understand what you mean by not being an English major, and there are certain texts that people sort of expect you to read mm-hmm. as, a, as a writer, because people assume that all writers are they English majors, and we're not all right. that. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I missed out on a bunch of stuff as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing that I was thinking about was um, Infinite Jest. Oh, David yeah. David Foster oh, Wallace. Yes. Oh. Which, uh, so this involves my husband, because one. when we started hanging out, okay. hanging out, I'm doing yeah. air quotes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he had read Infinite Jest and, okay. you know, understood that there were some issues with David Foster Wallace and yeah. understands that his legacy Clearly. is is complex. Yeah. Um, but he really liked it on the on the level of prose, like on the sentence level. Yeah, I do and too. Thought that it was quite something to admire. Yeah. And I remember we would have these like long conversations, kind of like staring into each other's eyes. Uh, <laughs> and when she would talk about the book, and I would never, I wasn't going to lie outright and say that ah, I had read it, but I just kind of did I that whole this. like nodding, yeah. blinking along, yeah. like, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then did you think to yourself, I should go pick it up tomorrow? Yeah, so and you... I can't fucking read it. <laughs> it's, it's like, I just, <laughs> I just can't do it. It's, I can't. And you know, I, we've Love been together it. for like 15 years now, so we've learned over time that we are very, very different readers. Yeah, like the things yeah. that he tends to appreciate, yes. I just don't at all, and often vice versa. And there's like a little bit of the, a meeting in the middle. Right, overlap, right. But I can't read that book. <laughs> just, wow. I can't. <laughs> not on can't your list, not going to do it. No, and at this point, honestly, like in my 40s, I just started to decide, like, if I'm not having it with a book, yeah. I'm going to put it down because yeah. life is too short to read stuff oh, that I'm not, yeah, that I'm not feeling. A, 
Mm. You got it. There's you have to figure out what your point is for dumping a book early in it, not yeah. That point of investment. I used to feel really guilty about it, but more and more I'm just like letting it go because there are better. I books. love that. I love that. I books. love that. I love that you say that because I think a lot of times when I start someone something, and um, you know halfway through and I'm like, oh man. You know, it's kind of dragging. It's kind of like, you know, I also am a person who needs to be motivated mm -hmm. to do, you know, like, I mean, I'm hugely a person who's like, if I'm not feeling it, I will dump, I'll dump my life if I'm not feeling my life. You know what I'm saying? So books are like, and I've actually done it a couple times over now. So hopefully we're at a resting place. But I'm just saying that, yes, I feel like that too, but I... I feel guilty about it. I feel guilty about even, especially if it's a friend's book. Like, say it's a friend who wrote something, and I'm Ooh. like, and I get yeah. halfway through, yeah. and I'm just like, yeah, I. I'm really glad the question was not like name a friend's book. <laughs> oh no, I would never do that. Oh no, I would never do. No, I, no, I'm not I would that never old. Give the oh my god, to no, no way. No, no. I mean, most, all the people, all the people we talked about were deceased here. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, so. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I mean, that's. Helpful. Mm. I mean, not helpful that they're deceased, but helpful yeah. that yeah, it's fine, <laughs> they can't come after yeah, us. Let's speak a little again. <laughs> All right, that's it. That's, that's the it. episode. Thank yeah. you again for another great one. John, Thank you so for joining us. You. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I yeah. hope so. Yeah, we had a great time. Yeah, we were great. Yeah, and uh, morning drinking, always a big fan of that. Oh my uh, God, he's always telling our business people. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know, it, what, it's not morning, it's mid, it's mid afternoon. It is close yes. noon when we open the bottle. And yeah. everyone here is sober, <laughs> not. Um, so as always, um, make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Check like us, out us on Instagram. Us. We're on Twitter and Instagram yes. at Lip Pop Bang. Yeah. Uh, do all that stuff, share the news, get the word out. That's yeah. always helpful. And thank for you us. for listening. We we always love our listeners. Yeah, we yeah. love you all. We love yeah. you so much. We tweet about us. We love that. We tweet about you. We Your do. eyes are closed. They're feeling it. They're they feeling are. That love. We, we are. So much love. So much love. All right, and as always, coming from Charm City, I'm Anthony. And I'm Cece. And this has been Lit Pop Bang. <laughs>